Welcome, everyone, to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Kim Kid Curry, former DJ legend and radio executive for 33 years, 25 of them in Miami, Florida, working for top-tier radio stations such as Power 96X Miami, Y100 Miami, I-95 WINZ Miami, KTSA, San Antonio, Texas, WASH, Washington, D.C., just to name a few. Kim has worked with big-name entertainers such as Gloria Estefan, Jay-Z, and Snoop Dogg, just to name a few also. He has been awarded the prestigious Street Information Network Career Achievement Award. After research into his MS disease progression, he decided to retire from broadcasting to deal with his MS diagnosis and eventually taking up writing and authoring his memoir, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through, and also does MS advocacy work, among many other things. Welcome, Kim, to the podcast. Ron, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Our pleasure. I read your book, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through, and it was a great read. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Tell us about your early years growing up in Colorado and what sparked you to get into broadcasting. Well, my dad was retired from the U.S. Navy after 20 years, a Korean War veteran, and had a variety of different jobs. When I was in high school, my senior year, he had landed as the uh, news director slash sales guy at the only radio station in my hometown. And he came home one day and he said his boss wanted to know if I wanted to babysit. And I assumed that he wanted me to babysit his children because back then in high school, that's how I used to make my money was babysitting my parents' friends' kids. Uh, So I got to the radio station expecting to see his kids and the general manager said, no, I don't want you to babysit them. I need you to babysit the radio station. And what he meant by that was uh, Sunday mornings, they would play back the previous week's church services on the radio and nobody wanted that job. So a <laughs> high school kid, yeah, and that, got, that got to be me. So that's how I got started. And it was uh, unique because the radio station was very old school. Well, we say that word now, but they were playing Sammy Davis Jr. And I was wanting to play the Beatles. Yeah. So it, was, it was kind of a culture clash at high school, but it was the only station in town. And it was kind of neat being able to hear my voice on the radio. So. so you got the bug there. Yes, sir. Tell us how you got the name Kid Curry. <laughs> well, okay. So I go to college, uh, uh, to University of Southern Colorado. Back then, they call it Southern Colorado State College. Um, and I went for two years or so. And uh, at the same time, I was part-time on one of the commercial top 40 radio stations in town. Now. You you can't call a guy Kim in the 1970s. You just didn't do that. There were not too many guys named Kim. Yeah, yeah. And that's that, my name. That, that didn't work. Yeah. So the first day I got my, my first job in this top 40 radio station, there was a guy in the office in the production room, and he was recording all these drops, you know, all the things that say, you know, Larry King plays the best, whatever, you know, all yeah. the deep voice yeah. guys. And my and the, the boss turned around and he looked at me and he said, we have to make one for the news guy. And then he said, well, we can't call you Kim. And he turned around and he picked up a single, a 45 single. And he said, okay, we'll call you Gary Paxton. Well, the single he picked up was The Monster Mash by Bobby Porras Pickett, but it was written by Gary Paxton 
fast forward the connection okay. to Tammy Faye Baker, but that's a whole nother story. Okay. <laughs> so that was my first radio name was Gary Paxton. I spent two years or so in college, got my real, I got the oats, man. I, I knew I could do this radio thing and I wanted to go out and get a full-time job. So I applied for jobs across America uh, with these air checks. Now, what you do to apply for radio jobs is you only put on tape the things you say, you cut out the music. So on these air checks, that's how we apply for a job. I sent them out. A guy uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee offered me my first full-time job. So as I'm driving across the country to my first full-time job in Knoxville, I was going on at 10 o'clock at night. I knew I needed a new radio name. And because I was going on at 10 and it was, you know, the 1970s, I wanted to call myself Night Smoke. That's because, a neat you know. name, Night Smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very much a memory that I cannot get rid of in my head. I drove up to the radio station in Knoxville my first day and walked up the stairs and opened the door and put my hand out to the receptionist who was sitting at the desk and behind her was a big guy with curly hair. And I stuck out my hand to the lady and said, hello, ma'am. Uh, my name is Night Smoke. I'm your new nighttime <laughs> DJ. And the guy behind her says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I said, well, first of all, you have to know why Kid Curry was there. Back in the 1970s, or actually the 60s, remember Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid? Yeah, yeah, sure. The, a the ABC television network did a show called uh, uh, Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry. It was a version of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And one of the characters was called Kid Curry. So when I was in high school, my friends would joke at me, hey, Kid Curry. So when he said, well, if it isn't Kid Curry, I said, sir, I hate that name. My <laughs> friends call me that. And he says, well, I said, well, Kid Curry it is. I didn't know he was the boss, but that's how I got the job. And that's how I got the name Kid Curry. And it stuck with me. I didn't know at the time, but it was the smartest thing that. I oh, you know what? We're breaking up for some reason been me can you hear me mm. yes sir yes sir sorry yeah. just taking a drink of water you know oh, i think our internet connection is a little unstable that's why could you just repeat that when you were talking to the the, the, the guy behind the, the desk uh I, I don't think it went through because of the internet okay no problem so uh i walk up i shake the lady's hand i said hello my name is is night smoke i'm your new nighttime dj and and the guy behind the lady at the receptionist desk says well if it isn't kid curry now he i don't like the name kid curry because in the 70s there was a tv show called alias smith and jones it starred kid curry and hannibal hayes it was a takeoff of the original butch cassidy and the sundance kid so when i was in high school my friends would always joke at me because hey kid hey kid curry so i didn't like the name Right. So the guy behind the guy behind the receptionist says, well, if it isn't Kid Curry. And I said to him, well, I'm sorry, I hate that name. And he said, well, then I won't sign your check. And I said, well, <laughs> Kid Curry, it is. Yeah, and, uh, because there's only been one Kid Curry, as far as I know, on the radio since then. I've only I've been one. There's only one. So well, it's very hard to confuse me with others. Very unique. Take us through the journey you had from being a DJ to being a top radio executive around the country, and then finally to Miami, where you circled back and spent 25 of your 33 years in the industry. Okay. I know that's a, that's a big task to ask, but 
you know, if you can briefly do it. I think I can tell a good story here. Um, You know, you got to kind of go back to the to the days of radio in general. Uh, There was a time when there was only AM radio and then they came up with FM radio. That's frequency modulation as opposed to amplitude modulation. Frequency modulation, FM means if you can see the tower, you can pick up the radio station. Amplitude, AM bounces off the ionosphere. So AM was there first all top 40, all music, everything was on AM. Then there came a time in the early 70s, late 60s, when you had these FM radio stations appear. And because they were experimental, they didn't really put much faith in them. And they let the guys go on the radio and say, well, before that we heard, and before that we heard. And it was kind of a hippie type radio station. So eventually, top 40 music went from the AM dial to the FM dial. And when I was in college, it was a brand new thing. And we were very excited about hearing top 40 music on FM. And one of the premier battles in America on FM was happening in Miami. It was happening between Y100. And at that time, it was 96X. So uh, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. I get this job offer from a guy at 96X. Uh, Come to find out his name, Jerry Clifton. And he is in the battle of Miami radio, Y100 was the premier station because they had money. They gave away lots of cash. Their program director was Bill Tanner. 96X, the guy who hired me, was named Jerry Clifton. They didn't have any money. But what made Jerry Clifton unique is he could he figured out different ways to play psychological games on the radio that attracted listeners, as opposed to why 100 was giving away $50,000 cash prizes, the largest cash prizes in America at the time. So I go down there to work for the competition, the guys who are trying to knock off number one. Right. Well, six months after I get to 96X and I'm brainwashed by Jerry Clifton, who is a genius, uh, we were having tons of success. Well, he got fired. He got dismissed because of an earlier contest he had done years prior, and he took blame for it. And the FCC eventually came in and shut down the frequency 96.3 at the time. So when he got fired six months after I got there, I was preparing to find a job somewhere else in America because Jerry Clifton had us thinking that Y100 was the devil. This is competition, broadcasting competition, ratings, And so he wanted to beat them up. So he made us think they were the devil. So I'd never have thought to apply to Y100. I applied at other stations around America. Like the third day after Jerry leaves, I get a phone call on on my show at night on 96X from my competition at Y100, who tells me that he is leaving to go to Boston. And his boss, Bill Tanner, has decided he wants me to be the guy to replace him. Because I had a unique radio style. Back then, all DJs had big, deep voices. But I I have a very unique, young-sounding voice, even more so 40 years ago. So the Kid Curry act was pretty impressive back then, and he decided to hire me. So now I've gone to work for one legend and then worked for another legend. These two smart guys were extremely important in the radio business and in in, in having successful radio station gather massive amounts of audience. So that branded me. I was as a young child hired by these two guys and it really helped my radio career. And I worked for these guys uh, most of my time. After I left uh, uh, Miami, I went to uh, 
to, to San Antonio to work for Jerry Clifton as a program director at KTSA. I'm there for a year or so, and then Bill Tanner moved from Miami up to Washington, D.C. to work for Wash FM, Party yeah. 97 Wash FM, very famous Washington, D.C. radio station. Now, it was a conservative station at the time, and the people at Metro Media, that's John Kluge, take that all the way back to Fox Television. So Metro Media decided they, did, they wanted to try to make a conservative station a top 40 station, and Bill Tanner had the most success at the time in America, so they hired him to go to D.C. Bill brought me up to Washington, D.C. to fight that battle. Now, Here's where my MS starts to show, if I can go ahead and start putting that in here. Well, yeah, I that's going to lead me into my next question, which yes, is, sir. tell us the stress all these jobs caused you, such as the lack of sleep, et cetera, as you were trying to do a very difficult job as a DJ at a top-tier radio station and striving for a management position as a program manager. Well, I can tell you that multiple sclerosis has, had been in my body my whole life. Yeah, I had had exacerbations. I just didn't know what they had, what they were. I thought maybe I just had a bad flu. At one time, I thought I'd been beaten by fire ants. And then I thought I'd been stung by a killer bee. Uh, these things were happening to me at random through my life, but I just kind of blew them off. They go away over a couple of days. That was MS just, just showing. Right. And that happened periodically. I really had a, a I, I, I wanted to be the boss someday. There was no doubt about it. But these guys always thought of me as their employee. So I, like a soldier, came in behind them and did what I was supposed to do. And Bill Hare hired me in D.C. And I had a, you know, I had a feature at night. Uh, it was called Bed Check. And it was the big thing that it was what really created my, my persona. I would put everybody on the radio for, you know, a quick moment at five minutes before the end of my show, and they could say random comments. Now, as a top 40 nighttime DJ, this show was always affected by teens. I mean, I would have kids calling in, and they could rip on their teacher, a friend, whatever the case may be. In Washington, D.C., it became a political statement, and I started getting political phone calls. I even got a call from a guy one time who called himself Frank DeFramer. Yeah. And because these were just random phone calls. Right. This guy would call and say he was Frank DeFramer and, and he had the president sitting there listening to me and he was enjoying the bed check. And I would just go to the next call thinking the guy was just a freak. He was just calling and saying this. Eventually, I stopped my show, got him on the phone. He's called back four or five times. And I said, so who are you? He said, well, my name is Frank DeFramer. I'm the official guy who takes care of the portraits in the White House. Somebody has to maintain the portraits in the White House. And that was his job, Frank DeFramer. So yeah, who he, knew he, that, right? Who, who knew? <laughs> yeah. So he, he became a radio television, I mean, a radio telephone friend of mine. Uh, now, then Bill Tanner decides to go back to Miami. Uh, like I said, I wanted to be the boss. I had been following these guys around for my career. That's the only two guys I worked for were Jerry and Bill. So I kind of wanted to break away. Bill wanted me to come back to Miami. I was in the Northeast. I really had a good time in Washington, D.C. So I decided to stay there and was offered a job at B104 in Baltimore. Now, that was run by a guy by the name of Steve Kingston. Steve Kingston eventually ends up running Z100 New York, the biggest top 40 station of them all. 
So now I've worked for three of the geniuses of my business, and I believe I've learned enough to try to become program director a few times. But I was always looked over because I was the nighttime DJ. I had groupies coming to the radio station, and management never took me serious. Kim, yes, uh, when I was reading the book, can you go back to that story with Frank the Framer and tell yes. the audience what happened when you actually? Yeah, you know what I'm okay. you know what I'm saying. The exacerbation, yes, sir. So, so now I'm in Baltimore. I, I'm just I'm going to try to run through this. I was yeah. in Baltimore, and uh, my girlfriend had her grandmother visit from Texas. Right. Right. Uh, the grandmother, I in a conversation at dinner, I told her that I had this friend at the White House, Frank DeFramer, tell her yeah. the story. She says, "Well, then I want to go take a tour of the White House." So then I've got to call the White House and say hello. Uh, can I speak to Frank DeFramer? I have no idea what this guy's real name was. And right. the lady at the White House said, oh, sure. Hang on. I'll get him for you. Oh, I was shocked. He gets on the phone and I'm like, hey, Frank, it's Kid Curry's <gasps> kid. Sure. I have Where did you go? He didn't realize I'd gone to work in Baltimore. So I told him my story. I needed to come down and visit the White House with the grandma. Mm -hmm. So now this was just after the Reagan assassination attempt. They had not made any changes to the security around the White House. So when I went there that day, I got grandma on the back seat, girlfriend over there, and I'm driving around on my Toyota Celica, and, and I'm trying to figure out where to get into the White House. And there was this one road that looked like it went right up to the door. So I start going down this road, and as I'm driving down to the next door of the White House, um, the Secret Service starts pulling their guns on me. And I could see guys coming out of everywhere and guns. So at that point, stress took a major effect in my body and stress is connected to MS. Yeah. So by the time I stopped my car and opened my door, I fell out of the car. My sure. right arm completely paralyzed. My right eye went black. My wow. legs were seizing and I fell out of the car and they're pointing the guns at me. And I'm yelling, yo, I'm here to see Frank DeFramer. <laughs> And they're like, oh, Kid Curry. Yeah, Frank told us you're coming. No sweat. So that was an exacerbation. I did not know what it was, but it totally took me out. Oh, and yeah. Now, so later in life, when I, get, when I get diagnosed, I start to connect these buttons and I go, oh, this has really been here for a while. Stress really affected my job. And so, eventually it caught up with me. So, Kim, you kept experience off things physically, so to speak, such... Uh, you're right. Like when you were in New York at a meeting and, and what your mother said to you at a visit, when you went back to Colorado, she said, you've got to stop and smell the roses. And she told you, you didn't look like yourself. Something was wrong, such as a scowl on your face. And, and you seemed uneasy. At what point did you realize something very wrong was happening to you physically? And where did you first seek medical help? And did that start the process of finding a diagnosis of what was wrong? Well, things were, were really hectic for me because, you know, in 1996, um, by this time in 1996, I'd gone back to Miami. Um, I want to break away from the podcast to tell you about a great Amazon bestseller book one of our supporters of the podcast has written. Author Laborio Longaro is a veteran decorated NYPD cop with 20 years of service. Since leaving the NYPD, he has blended his lifelong passion for writing and his life experience to create a fascinating story based on true events. A former sergeant and detective in the NYPD, 
He brings his investigative expertise to the forefront, giving the reader compelling characters that are real, not fictional. The book I am talking about is The 3-0, based on a true story of the largest police corruption scandal in New York City history. In the early 1990s, a total of 33 police officers were led away in handcuffs from West Harlem's scandal-ridden 30th Precinct, dubbed worldwide by the media and news agencies as the Dirty 30. These officers were arrested on corruption charges. Two sergeants were taken into custody as well, making this the first time in New York City's police department history that supervisors were implicated and proven that corruption runs higher than just the cop on the beat. One rogue police team was under the umbrella of a questionable captain who was never brought up on charges. But should he have been? Was a televised cop a patsy? If so, who were the real dirty cops? One supervisor who worked at the 30th Precinct, Sergeant Longaro, has the answers to all of these questions and more. He knew the politicians, the chief, and the questionable captain, as well as the two corrupt sergeants. He also dealt with the dirty 30 cops, and he battled them all and at the same time protected his good cops from the bad. It was a constant tug-of-war of good versus evil, a constant cat-and-mouse game with a dirty sergeant and questionable captain. But the story of the Dirty 30 is not just about police corruption. It is the story of what happens when social order collapses under the weight of politics, race, fear, drug cartels, illegal immigration, the rights of citizens, and the role of law enforcement to protect and serve. It is the story of the good guys going after the bad guys, of how officers react to investigating their own, discovering corruption among their own, and arresting their own in the biggest, most diverse city in the country. Ultimately, it is a story of a political time bomb that no one wanted to touch. The author's attention to detail and natural way of telling his story will make you feel like you are walking the beat beside him. This book will make a great gift and will probably be a one-sitting read because you will not be able to put it down. Available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble Books A Million in paperback and Kindle version. The book and author will be listed in the podcast notes. Uh, And then I, well, I don't want to get too confusing. So so I'm I'm back in Miami in 1996 uh, and I worked for these guys you know, and now I'm in a station called Power 96, which is now connected to Bill Tanner and Jerry Clifton. They're the consultants. So now I'm back in the building working for the two guys I've always worked for. Right. And, and when one of them, Bill, gets dismissed because of a personal problem he got into, Bill gets fired because he was the actual in-house program director. Instead of making me the program director, and I'd been his assistant PD before, they gave it, he gave it to his assistant, his music director, and his name was Frank Walsh. Now, Frank, life prior to, as I was running the station in San Antonio, Frank was my assistant. I always thought when Frank, when Bill left, it should have been me. It wasn't. Frank runs the radio station for a couple of years, and then the ratings fail. So then they dismiss Frank. Now the program director is me in the interim. They've made me the interim program director. And now they're bringing in all these guys from all around the country. And when they come to my office, they say, hey, this is Kid Curry. He's our interim until we hire the right guy. And I'm telling the management, you need to make me the program director. I've been in this town for 20 some years now. I've got this figured out. You need to let me do it. And they continually said no for six months. However, 
I made changes to the radio station that increased the ratings during those six months. And eventually they had to decide that they were going to make me the program director. They now, finally got it right. Finally got it right. And at that particular moment in time, uh, it all kind of it, it gelled. Uh, we had the highest ratings in the history of the radio station. I didn't really do anything because I was set up. Bill Tanner and Frank Wall set this radio station up for me. What I brought in was a different attitude. You know, you got just a different conductor. That's all it took. And I had the right vibe at the time. The station had the greatest ratings. But remember, this is a 24-hour radio station. And when you're the program director, you don't shut it off. I listen constantly. My kids, my two oldest, grew up listening to the radio station while they were watching television. I never shut it off. I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. All of this begins to build up. Yeah. And, then, and then I was in a unique situation where I had put together a boy band. And that's what you're talking about with the situation in New York City. I had gone to New York City to talk to some record companies about the boy band that I had put together. Uh, it just so happens the stress of being up there, uh, coming out of my radio station coat to put on a, a, a record promoter coat, uh, trying to go in front of these major record companies in, in, a, in a realm I've never been in. Right. Uh, all the, and then there was also a, a major low pressure system also hit. MS, I, my MS is affected by low pressure. So I'm up there that weekend and my body completely has a shutdown. I end up in the hospital after I've met with two or three record companies. That night, I end up in the hospital. I'm totally in an exacerbation. I had no clue what was going on. I finally get home that night. My wife is concerned. And this is around Thanksgiving, right, right around Thanksgiving. And then we get into December. We go to visit my mother for the holidays. Now, my mom can see that there's something seriously wrong. She's her son doesn't look right. My yeah. eye was drooping. I wasn't sure. wa walking correctly. And she just flat said, you've got to go see somebody. You've got to stop and smell the roses. You've got to take some time for yourself. That really, those two things happening within a four or five month period made me slow down and go, wait a minute. Now we really have a problem. Yeah. So by March or so, uh, I had gone in. Actually, I went to my chiropractor, of all things, because I was not really a doctor guy. I thought if I'm walking funny, maybe the chiropractor, she can just kind of pop my back and get it back together. But it was the chiropractor who took off my shoes and she could see that my toes were curled. She said, no, there's something here I cannot fix. You've got to get to a neurologist. Uh, and I did. Uh, began the process of being diagnosed. Those tests take about six weeks. You go through some intense tests, right. needles, eye, eye exams, um, ends up uh, with spinal tap, uh, which was extremely painful for me because of the situation. They couldn't find spinal fluid, and they attempted four times in one day wow. uh, until they finally got it. Uh, so that kicked in the diagnosis. Uh, uh, actually, I was at a corporate meeting. Uh, our corporate office was in Naples. So I was across the Alligator Alley over in Naples. Uh, I get a phone call in the big corporate meeting at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. I leave the room, go to, the, to my phone, and uh, the doctor says, you know, you've got to come and see me on Monday. I am fully convinced you have multiple sclerosis. We need to start planning your new life. And so I walked back into the corporate meeting and gathered my briefcase and told the guys goodbye. 
then I got in my car and got back on my phone to my wife and told her what had happened. Spent the next three hours going across Alligator Alley while she was Googling multiple sclerosis. Neither one of us had a clue. In that three hour drive back home, uh, you realize some fairly serious things could happen. And um, so that was a Friday. Monday morning, I went into the office and told my office that um, I, I was, I was, what scared me was I had stopped being concerned about the radio station. I had, that had never happened. I had only con been concerned about my right, show right. or my radio station. And suddenly from five o'clock or whatever, Friday afternoon until Monday morning at 6 a.m., the station didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was happening to me. So I went in that morning and told my boss that was it. Uh, they tried to hire me back and try to get me to stay. And I said, no, I was leaving. Uh, at that point, my wife refers to that as our snow globe moment. That's the time when our whole life just got shaken. And we had to sit back and wait for it all to fall because we didn't know what we were going to do. Didn't know what even if I was going to be able to have an income. But fortunately, uh, I was such a busy program director. Uh, my office manager used to come into me and put papers on my desk and say, sign these. I didn't realize that she had made me sign a long-term insurance policy. Uh, so that suddenly was not a problem. Well, that was a godsend. Oh, are you kidding? You should have seen that day. I love that woman. I want to say hello <laughs> to Phyllis. Phyllis will be watching this. Hello, Phyllis. I love you. Well, I hope and, she's uh, listening or watching. Oh, she will. Kim, how, sure. how old were you at that time? I was 50. I had just turned 50. Okay. Okay. So that's when everything just, it just stopped. And then you've got to see that here, here, I, all my, my life was being Kid Curry. Sure. I was, the kind, I was the kind of guy people gravitated toward. Yeah. Well, over the next two or three years, I became the guy that people moved away from because I went from walking to a cane to crutches, eventually into a wheelchair. Yeah. And each, each progression made people stay further and further away from me. And that really messed with my mind. Not only was I going through that, but I was crashing with MS. I mean, I, I physically was falling apart, completely losing all function of my lower body. Uh, and it went on for around eight years. Uh, so it took me a long time, and I really never came out of it until my, until my doctor decided that we needed to change the medicine. We needed to get a, uh, I, he'd been preaching to me for years to start taking vitamin D. I had told him that as a DJ, I made jokes about vitamin C because my mom always said that, and then she'd call and sneeze at me. Yeah. So, you know, I never really believed in vitamins, but the doctor made a medicine change. Uh, my wife convinced me we needed to start taking the vitamin D, uh, eight years into my, to a fairly serious degradation of my body, my condition leveled off. And six months after I took this medicine change, suddenly I was not getting any worse. And it, it really, it really changed a lot of things because I'm thinking for years that I'm probably going to die because I see people dying with this disease and I'm, I'm not getting any better, but suddenly it just stopped. Now I can tell you that everything that was happening to me then happens now. Uh, my whole lower body right now is seizing. My legs are straight out in my, that's why I got to be in a wheelchair. Uh, 
My leg seized constantly. So uh, my eye fails, my shoulders, I drop things because my joints don't work, but it's not gotten any worse. So I'm still on that medicine regimen. I'm still taking that vitamin D like crazy. But what changed after my condition leveled off for a couple of years? I had a friend uh, who was very influential in the music business. Uh, he ran one of the largest magazines in the business. It was an independent magazine. You know, you see people get the Grammys, but, you know, Beyonce wouldn't get that Grammy. Uh, Jay-Z wouldn't get it. Uh, Wyclef, uh, you know, Tom Jones wouldn't get their Grammy if it wasn't for the record promoters, the guys who actually get the songs right. on the radio stations. So this guy, Vince Pellegrino at the Street Information Network, uh, ha ha always held this big ceremony every year. It was an industry thing where he would give awards to the biggest promoters in the business, the guys who would actually get the songs on the radio. And it became a huge industry thing. Vince and I had become very close friends during the last four or five years of my reign at Power 96. After I, I got diagnosed and I disappeared because I honestly just disappeared. No one knew where I was. The only, I had maybe two people that knew what was going on with me. Vince was one of them. Uh, his birthday was on April Fool's Day. I'm a 420 baby. So every April I'd get a phone call or an email from Vince on April Fool's or on my birthday. And I would shoot one to him on April Fool's. But I never really, I just disappeared. My condition leveled off. I get a phone call one day from Vince. He's in his office and he says, you know, I think it's time for you to come back and tell people where you've been. I want to, I want to fly you and your family out here to New York. You're going to be featured in my upcoming awards ceremony. I want to give you a uh, lifetime achievement award and people need to see you. You need to be able to show them who you are today. And it really hit me. I mean, it really hit me. I yeah. mean, it, I, had dis, I, had I had had my whole life ripped away and I thought no one cared anymore because in reality, I didn't reach out. Nobody reached out to me. So it was, I just disappeared. So that must've been great to hear from Vince though. Oh, it was. But now I go to this thing and I see my entire career over 30 years sitting in front of me. Uh, they put me on stage, actually, these big heavy guys had to lift my wheelchair up on the stage. Yeah. And, and so I see everyone. Uh, I, I didn't really get to talk to Vince much because he was very busy that night. He, he catches me as I'm leaving. He says, listen, we're going to have breakfast tomorrow morning at the hotel. He comes over that morning and we're having breakfast. And he says, you know, what I didn't tell you is I only have a few more months to live. And I, wow. I, I just felt like I needed you to be here. I needed to see you one more time. And then he said, you need to come back. And I said, Vincent, this is radio. This is music. I'm too old. The, the generations have well past my time. But he wanted me to do something. He said, you just can't sit around. So right. that's what created this new me, this new writing thing. Right. Uh, the whole reason I wrote Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through was to tell my story of the career, my MS diagnosis, and then what happened after that. And then I wanted to tell the story of my friend Vince and, and, and how he really pulled me up and said, yeah. come on, you've got to shake yeah. yourself off. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. After, after you and your wife uh, learned all you could about MS, you know, you decided to retire. How did that decision affect your marriage and your emotional state? Well, you can, here's something that 
happens, well, you know, some, some women, some couples don't survive things like this. Um, but my wife is Cuban. <laughs> right, right. So I'm sorry. Ellie, right? Know, That's her, her name is Ellie, right? Elizabeth, yeah, yeah, Elizabeth. So yes, absolutely. But she's Cuban. And her thing was to let's rally the troops. We're going to get through this regardless. We're going to stay on top of it. My wife has afforded me everything I need to live a comfortable life. You know, we got out to Colorado and we started doing fixing and flipping with my money. And uh, she didn't like what was going on with the real estate industry. So she went out and got her license in real estate. Uh, a year and a half later, she's breaking records in the state per capita in real estate sales. Uh, two years after that, she becomes an international real estate consultant. And now that's what she does. And she is high pressure, uh, smart, positive. And that's what helped get me through. Uh, although I was having a problem with people and me, what I finally realized, though, after, after a while, Ron, is Kid Curry, who, who used to kind of be the guy when he walked in the room, is the same guy who rolls in in the wheelchair. And sure. people still look at you. There's, you're still the topic of conversation. So that's what happened. I started thinking, wait a minute. I'm going to make this advantage. So now I'm the guy. When I roll in, I'm the first guy that smiles. I take my mask off. If No, I will say hello to everyone. Right. I'm, I, I'm, I'm the guy. I set the pace now in the room. And you're the same mental... guy. You're just doing it differently. Right. Well, ab you know, you're absolutely correct. But I had to get there, Ron. It yeah. took me a long time to get there. And then when I got there and I finally realized it, I'm, I'm, I, I'm okay now. And uh, I, I love being out. I don't have, a like I said, my wife affords me. Uh, I have a wheelchair for my car. I'm, I'm sitting in a wheelchair now. Yeah. Part of my book is, is how expensive it is. It costs to be disabled in America. And yeah, we're so going to get into that. We're gonna okay, get good. I'll, I'll let you get there. Uh, uh, no problem, Ron. Ellie or Elizabeth calls yes. you Poppy. Am I right? Mm -hmm. She calls yes, you Poppy. Sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, do people you know from the past or just ordinary everyday people, do they treat you any differently now that you're in a wheelchair? You know, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's become a funky thing. And this kind of happened at my high school, my last high school reunion, which would have been my 40th, uh, when, you know, when everybody first got to town, they all came over to see me and I, they were like, hey, you know, we'll get you on the golf cart and we'll take you out to the golf course. You can ride around the golf cart with us and everything. And then when it came time for the golf game, nobody wanted to come pick me up. So, uh, and those are my high school friends. I mean, I thought, well, I, I, but I understand. I understand because I, I'm, I can be a burden. Sometimes I get in the way of things, but you know, I, eh, I have a problem with some people who treat me that way, but you know, it's not my place to decide what other people are going to see and what they're going to think. My place is to take care of me. And regardless of what happens, as I said, I control the room. I'm a really positive guy and I yeah. have no problem making friends. So uh, regardless of how they treat me, I don't really care. Uh, yeah. They're still my friends. Good. I That's a good way of doing it. You know, good. Yeah. Good. Ad. In your book, you use the phrase, I'm killing it, referring to all the times you have fallen. Tell us how you use humor in the face of all the adversity you face with MS 
and avoided depression, which is experienced by some MS patients. There came a point, Ron, when, you know, first of all, I, I, I don't want to be in this wheelchair. <laughs> and I didn't like it when I was going down. Um, you know, after my wife and I got this uh, property out here in Colorado, we came back to my hometown. After I got diagnosed, the only thing I got to think was to come back to my hometown because my mom is here. Uh, my high school friends are here. If I need help, hopefully they'll be there to help me out. And most of the times they did. I didn't really have a problem until my 40th reunion. Um, Ron, part of my MS is I, I space quickly. And we were, you asked me a question. I want to get back to it. Um, I'm so sorry I lost it. Uh, oh, yeah. How do you use humor? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, in the face of adversity. Okay. So we get this property. We're back in Colorado. Uh, I, my, I, I, I don't want to stop being functional for my family. We have an acre of property. So my wife let me buy a John Deere tractor. Uh, and, and part of the problem with the John Deere tractor is I couldn't get up on it. I had to, yeah, I, that was my next one. How are you going to get up on this thing? Well, <laughs> I, I just got real strong and started pulling myself up yeah. and, and, and I got it. And, but the problem, you know, of, of a guy like me falling all the time is, is first of all, uh, we, we tracked like three or four trips to the emergency room in the very beginning. Uh, after about three or four years, I realized I'd fallen 50 times. But now what you do where I'm, I was always an athlete, Ron, you know, didn't we learn how to fall? Sure. Didn't you, you watch the guys fall from the parachutes and learn how to buckle and fall and tuck and roll. Well, I've gotten real good at it. In fact, within the last week and a half, you can't see it. Now I've got a big bruise right here. Yeah. I was, see, I can, I can pull myself up at a counter and that's what I did for dinner. And I pull myself up. And as long as I'm holding onto the counter, I can eat with one hand, but I'm eating with one hand and I sneezed. Now, again, multiple sclerosis for me, when I sneeze, my whole body seizes and I went right to the ground, but I tuck and roll. My wife is on top of me at every moment. She's almost there before I even hit the ground, but I've learned to fall. And so now we kind of like, we, we kind of like count them as there's another, there's another. And I've survived. Because in the beginning, I didn't survive. I had broken a rib. Uh, I had uh, caused some real damage to a shoulder. So, you know, I had to learn how to fall. So it's just become something that I'm not going to, you know, I, I can't stop. Uh, yeah. I even stand up. I've fallen down in the, in the, on the main street of Canyon City, Colorado, getting a newspaper. Uh, I've fallen in the middle of the street. And had to sit there and had to pull my damn ass back up. We're, we're going to send you to the Olympics with, <laughs> and, uh, under the under the the term falling. That's it. I I can. Be uh, you're going to win a gold medal. I'll that. get a gold medal at falling, no doubt. Yeah. But it's just something I've decided. You know, I can't. Uh, you know, I was okay till I turned fifty, and I know that was sixteen years ago. But I'm not about to stop. Uh, the only person that I my wife, the only one that is in fear is my wife. She's always afraid that I'm going to hurt something. But every time I hit the deck, the first words out of my mouth are, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, tuck and roll. Tuck and roll. I'm okay. Tuck and roll, baby. I got it. Now, having MS does come with exacerbations or flare-ups, as you mentioned. What are, the, what are the type of exacerbations that seem to plague you the most? And could you briefly tell the audience about the Epley maneuver? Oh, yeah. Well, Okay, now in understanding multiple sclerosis, you know that there are lesions that appear on the brain. Uh, and that's, and wherever those lesions appear 
are the part of the body that are going to be affected. It just so happens my lesions are mostly on the part that affect my lower body. And they stopped. Okay, so I'm okay. But they stopped. I also have a lesion segment in the intercore of my brain where, where you have your uh, the crystals that set your balance yeah. are very, you've got those little crystals in there. As long as they're okay, you're fine. But when you get vertigo, that means your little crystals are out of whack. Well, I've got a lesion in there and I'm telling you, I can go from sitting up uh, to standing up and it kicks in and I fall. Uh, my brain starts to twist. Uh, it was really bad at one time uh, when I was in Boulder a few years ago with my family uh, it got so bad that, I mean, you know, when you're out of balance like that, the regurgitation, I couldn't stop vomiting it oh, went yeah. all day long. I was ill, but my wife and I had learned the Epley maneuver. Now the Epley maneuver is a specific motion that you can make with your head. You've got to lay down, put your head to the left, let it sit there for a while. And then you got to sit yourself up and, and see the problem with that for me is my legs see, so you really can't sit me up. So here's my wife and I in this bed in Boulder, this hotel, trying to do the Epley maneuver all day long, trying to get my crystals lined up again. But eventually, six hours into it, we finally did. So if you have a vertigo problem, please look up the Epley maneuver. First thing you need to do is go to a physical therapist, let them teach you how to do it. You can actually look it up online. But as I always say, get a physical, get a real uh, professional first to teach you because you'll learn things. But everybody who has that problem needs that Epley maneuver. Uh, and I have done it within the past two years. I've been stuck again where I've had to stop have my wife get me all set so she can sit me up and try to realign it. And uh, so when I go to my chiropractor, because I always get my lower back always twisted. And, and so when I sit up at the chiropractor, that kicks it in. So it's something that I deal with constantly. But these are things I've learned to deal with. I do the best I possibly can. I know most of the time when I push myself too hard, I rarely I rarely go into total seizure, but it does and can happen. And it's mostly a stress-related incident. Something will happen. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, an ex-wife could throw me into a total seizure and it yeah. can happen. It all depends on where my mental state is. And it happens uh, less and less now, but the, the symptoms I have have never gone away. Uh, my legs, as I say, I'm si they're sitting here right now stuck straight out and uh, I can't see out of my right eye because my adrenaline is running and that's really what causes these things to start. What prompted you to write the book uh, detailing your life titled Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through? Well, that little radio segment I used to have, uh, that's how I ended it because I was the little kid on the radio. I sounded like a little kid. So I'd take all these little calls on bed check, bed check. And then I'd say, okay, that's it. Come get me mother. I'm through. That's just how I ended my show. <laughs> yeah. So that just, uh, when I decided I was going to go ahead and tell my story, uh, after I had sat down with Vince and Vince had, had, uh, really kind of woken me up, you know, and then, you know, it was terrible because it was within three or four months after that, when I woke up and, got the news that he had passed away. So 
I just I just felt so blessed to be able to to be back in this guy's existence in the latter part of his life. I really felt like he had done me a favor, like he almost reached out to me and said, come on, uh, I need to help somebody. He never forgot about you. Oh, I love that guy. As a matter of fact, I just his wife appeared on my Instagram just this last week. And I've been looking for her because I wanted to send her a copy of the book. She just got a copy of the book yesterday. So she gets to read about it now. But uh, Vince is, uh, it really, it really fixed me. It really helped me on this road to starting to try to find a new me. After being Kid Curry, the radio guy, I'm now a writer. This is what I do. I've written the one book, uh, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through, my memoir. I went on from there to write another book. It's called The Death of Fairness. And it's a very simple little story about what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after President Reagan rescinded the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. It's a historical fiction. And and it's, it's spawned me to write another one. So that's what I do now. I can tell you that even my MS doctor tells me that since I've done this new thing, you know, when I first decided to write the book, as a DJ, I knew I couldn't write. So I actually went out and hired uh, the lady who was the founder of the Northern Colorado Writers Association. Uh, she had retired at the time, but she was floating around. And I went to one of their, to one of their meetings one day and I, I told them, listen, I need to write my memoir and I need to have someone teach me how to write. And the lady said, well, here's somebody who might be able to help you. And, and uh, so I, I, that's my lady. Her name is Carrie Flanagan. She is an author. She's got a variety of different books out on how to write. Uh, how to uh, write for magazines. Uh, So she taught me, she spent six months, she wouldn't even talk to me for six months. She made me read books to learn how to write. And then she, she, when when my six months were done doing that, she questioned me. She wanted to see if I had learned anything. And then uh, I started researching and writing things and sending it to her. And she would send it back to me with the little red marks on it, like your teacher used to do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and honed me to be a better writer. And now that I'm into my third, this next one is an 84,000 word uh, novel. This is a real book, um, but it's so much better. The writing style is so much better. I've learned so much. And my MS doctor says, this alone has probably grown my brain because he believes that even though, and everyone knows, your brain can do a whole bunch of stuff. You can damage part of it and your brain can rewire. He thinks my brain has begun to rewire some because oh. I was not this fluent, not this cognizant four or five years ago, I guarantee you. Well, shout out to Carrie Flanagan. I read the book and it, it was written excellently. I, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate uh, that. Now your wife, your wife has always fought for you regarding the healthcare system. Yes. And she said, Poppy, I make this, this system work for us because I have learned how to fight. So being an MS advocate, tell us your thoughts on the current healthcare system and you and your wife's philosophy about paying it forward. Well, I think everyone knows, you've heard it over and over again, um, for the richest nation in the world, the richest country in the world, we have the worst health care. And we do. Um, I can tell you that uh, my wife had to fight to find the correct policy for me. I am uninsurable, by the way. I cannot get life insurance policies. They tell you, you know, you see the TV commercials, yeah. you cannot be turned down for any reason. Yeah. 
that's BS. Yeah. Um, they won't take a guy like me. In fact, I'm rated everything that I do, even my healthcare in general is rated about 20% higher than everyone else's simply because I've got multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me is atrocious. Uh, and the thing is I can afford it. My wife will go out and search for days and try to find the correct policy for myself. And then she's got to find one for the rest of our family. My, my wife and my daughter, uh, they, she finds insurance for them. So she has to pay double yeah. for insurance in this. That's house. terrible. Um, and, and it's really part of what we all do, but we can afford it. Uh, I, I see people constantly uh, that it cannot, and it, it distresses me to no end. Uh, it, that's part of our pay it forward thing. That's why, you know, whenever, whenever I get a new wheelchair, we give the old one away to someone that we know needs it. Uh, we give money to the uh, Multiple Sclerosis Society, the American Heart Association. Uh, we give uh, every holiday time. We believe in, we both take around $100 bills. And there'll be that time you'll be standing in line at a store and you'll see some family walk up and I'll find a way to just walk over and give it to them as I'm leaving and say, see ya, goodbye. Because I'm the guy in the wheelchair. I can roll away. No one can say anything to yeah. me. And we do that often, my wife and I. That, that, that we feel we need to help because we can do it. Most people can't. So we, she has a real thing about paying it forward. So well, you're making a difference to those people, believe me. Well, I think it's part of our, you know, I, during the pandemic, we, I was a real <laughs> advocate of the 100% tip. If you're going to spend $50 and give $50, you know, I mean, you know, give these people some money. They need it too. Unfortunately, we can afford to do so. But, but you know, I, we do that at every angle we possibly can because we feel like, you know, we understand. We went from living a life of not even thinking. Well, I can tell you that my father had both his legs amputated. I What used to make me mad was people parking in handicap spaces. Well, it's still sits in my craw. Okay. Yeah, it's just, sure. I'm a little bit more angry now. I don't have a problem leaving a note on the door. Um, you shouldn't be parked here. Yeah. Um, you know, so it irritates it, me as well. It's, it's really important. I think that, you know, those of us who, who have clarity and, and good life and, and, and can do so to help out others. Absolutely. So we, we do it every, every place we can. And I can tell, yeah, I mean, I feel I can tell, you know, when I leave Whole Foods and that lady's there on the side and she's got a baby in her lap and she just looks despondent, I can tell that person needs money. So I've often turned back around and, and given cash to people like that. I just, you know, that's just the way we are. That's just the way it is. You're a good person. This is what we do. What advice do you have for people facing debilitating conditions such as yours or any other life adversities as far as dealing with their situation, both mentally and physically? You know, it's very difficult. You know, I didn't know anything about what it was like. You know, you go in, I go into the doctor's office and you see the people in the doctor's waiting room and nobody really talks to each other. Um, then, I, then my doctor once said, you know, you probably ought to go to a men over 50 with MS meeting. And I did that. And I got to meet some people just like me. I didn't know what it was like to have MS until I saw them because they, I only knew what was happening to me. But suddenly I'm seeing people that are complaining about the same things I'm complaining about, having the same terrible, terrible problems I'm having. And it really made me think about 
you know, what we need to do uh, to help people along. You know, you've got to be able to, to be straight. It bothers me when I go to these men's meetings and men have tried the drugs and none of them have worked and they say they're not taken anymore and then they disappear. They don't come back to the meeting. And all I wonder is what happened? So I try, it's important that you try to keep your mind straight. Know that you've got to fight as hard as you possibly can. Uh, don't give up. You can't give up because something can happen that can turn everything. I had a medicine change that changed it for me. And yeah, I still am not right, but it changed it for me. I'm not going to sit back and, and, and woe is me, my life. You know, it's tough. It is tough to have a disease like this. And you can only know what you know about your situation. But knowing what I know about how it affected me, I see other people, and I can only hope that they have the clarity of mind to wake up every day and know that they should try, try to get through and be a good person, be in a good mood, and try to get through a very difficult time in their life by controlling their mind. And that's really what it's all about, controlling your mind, thinking of the good things you have and the good things that you can have if you just stay clear in your mind. Kim, that's great advice. That's, that's great advice. Uh, my last question is, uh, what excites you going forward? Man, you know, Ron, um, I am, I, this writing thing that I'm doing now, yeah. and I just told you within, within the last two weeks, uh, I've, my new book that I've been shopping around to publishers all around uh, has garnered the attention of a best-selling author. Um, writing is my passion. In fact, this book that I'm that I've completed now that I'm that I, I haven't even had my first meeting with these people I've signed a contract with yet. I'm waiting for them to to look at my project and analyze it. But I ended this book already setting up the next book. So I'm already into the next thing. I'm already writing the next book. So this is where I'm going in my life. This is something I really enjoy doing. And my wife affords me once again, the ability to be able to be a self-published writer. Uh, I spend money on this. Uh, my books get read. I get on podcasts like yours, Ron. Uh, I've got some issues I think that people need to know about. And uh, so that's what I'm doing. I'm writing, having a good time. And the fact that that a, that a best-selling author has looked at my project and went, hey, you know, that's, you know, I probably put out 70 different uh, queries to publishers. Yeah. All of the, all of them, you know, 50 of them came back negative, but seven people took the time to write and say, you know, I think you've got a good story here. We just don't do this. So that made me go, wait a minute, push harder. And it just so happens that I, that, that I found this guy who goes, wait, this is good. So, you know, I want to get this story out and, uh, and I want to get on to the next one because I really have, you know, writing fiction is, it's, it's three and four o'clock in the morning here in my office. I bet. Where, you know, I'm sitting here coming up yeah. with scenarios and, you know, you have to, the scenarios all have to qualify. You can't, you know, I have to research what I'm saying and research what I'm writing. So, you know, it's really fun for me. The same effort that I used to be at the office at five o'clock in the morning running Power 96 and being there until 10 o'clock at night. It's the same thing. I've just transferred it from being, 
Kid Curry Radio DJ Program Director to Kid Kim Curry or Kim Kid Curry, the writer. So that's why well, I think the take your takeaway message is be a good person and don't give up. And um, be good to people, man. Just yeah. be good to people. Yeah. Kim, how can people follow and contact you? Thanks for that. Uh, my website, krcurry.com, has all the information on my books. I've got blogs up there. And I just redid the website. It's going to get really active here in the next few weeks because the people that I'm working with are going to help me uh, spread the news about my upcoming book. So I've got a bunch of new things coming on the site. And that's at krcurry.com. K-R-C-U-R-R-Y.com. You can find me there. Okay, I'm going to list. I'm going to list your links in the podcast notes. I appreciate it. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast and and hear your story. The name Kim Kid Curry will always be associated with inspiration, hope, and the overcoming of adversity, and winding up on top. You never changed who you are. You only changed the way you expressed yourself. I hope we have given someone out there. Uh, after hearing your story, the inspiration to overcome their adversity or life challenge. We welcome all comments and suggestions to improve the podcast. Uh, you can email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. Our website is it's a wrap with rap.com. You can go to the website, sign up for our newsletter. We're on Facebook, it's a wrap with rap. We are on YouTube. All the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with wrap, the podcast uncut. Thanks everyone for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and family. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.